Hello, I'm Foster Chamberlain, founder of the Historias podcast. Today I'm happy to announce a new episode by our first co-host, Breton Rodriguez. Breton is a teaching assistant professor of humanities at the University of Nevada, Reno, and holds a PhD in literature from the University of Notre Dame. He is a specialist in the literature, history, and culture of medieval Iberia, and he has already been a guest on our program. He is joining the podcast to expand our coverage of medieval and early modern Iberia. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Breton Rodriguez, and I'm here in Madrid with David Rear to talk about the image of Constantinople and Troy in the medieval and early modern Spanish imagination. David, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm excited to do this. Um, so, David is a PhD candidate in Hispanic and Lusa Brazilian Studies at the University of Chicago. He specializes in transcultural relations, collective identities, and lyric in the medieval and early modern Mediterranean. So, David, I thought we'd start off by just kind of providing a little bit of general context. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about kind of what's going on in this period, kind of in the late medieval, early, early modern period. And also talk a little bit about why you think this theme is so important as well. Sure. The fall of Constantinople, or better put, the conquest of Constantinople by Mehmed the Conqueror in 1453 was a major turning point for Europe um, and its sense of identity. The Ottomans would emerge on the scene as major European Mediterranean players and um, pretty much remain that way up until, you know, kind of a very slow, gradual decline in the 1600s. And um, they were uh, very much an existential threat for Europe as well. Although the Euro Europeans were mixed in terms of having a time ally um, alliances with them, Spain um, was pretty much their grand antagonist through much of the 1500s and 1600s. And so that's kind of touching on the context a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of what we see happening in the literature as well? So kind of how we see this kind of image come developing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gladly. <clears throat> so one thing I'm arguing with my dissertation is that Spain is uniquely positioned to understand this conquest of Constantinople. Uh, the conquest of Nople was in 1453. 50 years before the fall of the last Muslim taifa, uh, Granada, in 1492. So we have these kind of contrary movements where Spain is at last um, finishing the reconquest such as, it, such as it was and structuring itself more as a Christian nation at the same time that um, one of the hearts of the empire that it had looked to for centuries prior is becoming Islamified and very much Constantinople was... Um, a huge commercial center, even at this point, as well as still perceived as a classical foundation, you know, much in the style of Rome was for humanists of, um, of Europe at this time. But I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on the importance of the Ottomans, really in Spanish cultural production, so in writing, maybe in, you know, on the stage, things like that, and then also maybe perhaps throughout kind of Europe in general as well. Definitely. So George Batallon um, observes that there's twice as much published about the Turks as there is about the Americas during Golden Age Spain, just to give you a sense of the scale of um, Spanish literary production. And Jeremy Lawrence also makes the observation that this was just something that permeated all levels of Spain's um, socioeconomic um, divisions. So it was something people would sing about the, about the Ottomans in the streets, um, 
you know, uh, romanceros. They would publish um, Pliego Sueltos, you know, broadsides. They would be the subject of plays, the subject of treatises, the subject of um, travelogues, you know. Um, Spanish Hidalgos were expected to have the latest news about um, Spain. So it was the subject of paintings as well. So it was just something that covers a very broad range of cultural production. Nancy Bisaja is an Italianist who looks at the role of Ottomans in classical and humanist thought at this point. But um, what she says is very much true as well for the case of Spain, that just as classicism provided a lens through which humanists could understand um, the, the Turks, their interactions with the Ottomans also influenced their reading of classical texts as well. So even in you know the forefront of intellectual of Europe's intellectual movement, the Ottomans are have a very central role. Um, so one of the things I found really interesting, having had the chance to read through a little bit of your dissertation, one of the things you do is kind of look at the way we see Constantinople described and kind of the role it has in the medieval imagination in Spain, and then also the way that kind of changes a little bit as we get into the early modern. So I was wondering if we could talk first a little bit about the way that Constantinople was viewed, kind of the way the role it played in the Spanish imagination in the Middle Ages, and then maybe kind of turn the page looking at the role it played in the early modern period as well. Mm -hmm. So something to better to keep in mind as we're trying to contextualize Constantinople, Constantinople in medieval Spain is that this was still the Spain of the known plus ultra, you know, the no further than this. So Spain saw itself very much on the fringes of the rest of the world. Um, and this was even more so the case when Byzantine was at the, uh, sorry, when Byzantium was at the height of, you know, its prosperity for the Greek, for the, you know, what remained of the Roman Empire. It was at the very end of the very prosperous Silk Road trade. And part of this massively, massively wealthy Asian economy, Benjamin Liu talks about the need to sort of, um, quote unquote, reorient our reading of medieval texts at this time. And um, he's very much arguing, making the case for Spain looking at Asia, you know, um, and Constantinople at the sort of uh, fringe, the um, threshold into Asia, as this much more sophisticated, much more civilized, much more prosperous region that Spain would, you know, look on both with um, envy and admiration. And then how do things change following the Ottoman conquest? How do things change kind of as we get into the mid-15th century and then kind of moving forward? Right. So with that, there was a lot of anxiety, of course, because Constantinople had been, up until then, the very last remains of the Roman Empire, which had massive significance politically, culturally, um, you know, legally for all of Europe as well as, as well as Spain. So there was certainly this anxiety about Constantinople was, you know, a cornerstone for European identity, and now it's, you know, possessed by these decidedly altruized Asian, you know, Ottoman Turks. So another crucial change that we see with um, how Spain's view of Constantinople changes is, at least what I'm, one thing I'm trying to argue in my dissertation is that Spain is trying to extend its reconquest, as it were, into, you know, even into Constantinople. You know, there's this relative fluidity with applying a lot of the mechanisms that were used to justify, you know, conquest of um, the Iberian Peninsula. A lot of these paradigms go directly into justifying a potential conquest into Constantinople as well. Okay, so kind of there's this equation of this new Ottoman threat with this older kind of Muslim threat within the Iberian Peninsula that they're kind of accustomed to fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, you know, there's a lot of parallels with um, the language that used, in particular, um, Gabriel de 
Gabrielo Velasa de la Vega's play, La Destrucción de Constantinople, which was published in the um, uh, mid-1500s, sets up, even goes so far in the prologue to say that, um, look, the fall of Constantinople is something that could happen again to Spain. So there's this sense that the fall of Constantinople is very much connected to the fall of Spain in reference to the 7-11 Umayyad invasion, you know, and um, all of the mythos about that, you know, last Visigoth king, uh, Don Rodrigo, submitting to raping the daughter of Doña Florinda, the daughter of one of his counts, and the count, um, to, avenge the, um, to avenge the violation of his daughter, essentially invites the North African Muslims in to conquer Spain, where, you know, as the myth goes, they stayed until, you know, 1492. Okay, so I mean, in, in general, you kind of see this, this kind of increased anxiety, this kind of drawing upon this kind of remembered Muslim conquest of Spain, which becomes such a major part that we see in Spanish literature in general, mm -hmm. and they're kind of recreating that, kind of seeing that threat being map, kind of mapped onto the Ottomans as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with that anxiety, there is also, as happened with, you know, um, the promise of reconquest in, or, you know, reconquering, reconquering cities in the Iberian Peninsula, there was also this promise of um, prosperity, the chance to move into, move into lands and claim them as, an own, as their own. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way that we see this perception, this, this idea of Constantinople developing in the early modern period. So there's definitely an underlying um, anxiety with all of this. Some, you know, Constantinople was the last vestige of the Roman Empire, and of course that was the base for a lot of, um, you know, um, language, literature, cultural production, law, um, political structures, and such things in Europe. So of course, seeing that fall into these outsiders, you know, the Asian. Um, utterly Ottomans was, of course, a huge source of anxiety for um, Europe as well as Spain. Um, at the same time, my sense is that Spain was able to deal with this a lot more easily by pulling a lot, out a lot of the epistemological structures that it had used in the Reconquest. Um, it was able to map a lot of those onto um, to no, no, I'm sorry, negotiate these anxieties about the about the rise of the Ottoman Empire, and also kind of wend them into a sort of um, chance to move in to conquer and seize more more glory for Spain and Christendom. Sounds great. Thank you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about your your dissertation in particular. So in your in your project, you really focus on this the way that we see Constantinople being presented, the way we see it being written about particularly with regard to these specific spaces within society. And I was wondering if you talk, so you talk a great deal about the harem and the way we see it kind of represented in the harem, and also in these bathhouses as well. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why these spaces are so important and why Spanish authors keep coming back to these spaces when they want to talk about Constantinople and when they want to talk about the Turks in general as well. To understand this, we have to go back to the myth of the origin of the matter, modern um, Spanish states. So going back to 711, the um, this myth of the last Visigoth king Rodrigo, who uh, raped the daughter of one of his nobles, Conde Julian, named Doña Florinda, also known as the Cava, La Cava. And Conde Julian, to extract his vengeance, brought in the invading armies of the Umayyads in North Africa, who just swept through Spain. So there's this sense that Spain was being punished for the sexual wrongdoing of its of its last Visigoth ruler, and um, the harem very much evokes that. 
in contrast to other European accounts where they're much more comfortable with the idea of voyeuring women in the harem and, you know, later in having some sort of um, sexual, con you know, sexual contact with them, Spanish captives are much more resistant to any sexual involvement. At the same time, you can't mention the harem without also talking about how you managed to sneak in past all of the guards, past all of the doors, <laughs> past all of the grates, and, you know, catch hold of the forbidden woman. And she was indeed beautiful and worth all of that. So that kind of works a bit hegemonically. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by hegemonically? Uh, right, of course. So it's kind of a way to convert the state of captivity into one of triumph, Spanish triumph over the Ottoman, over the Ottomans, uh, where, you know, who are holding them captive. Spain, of course, at the same time, enclosed a lot of their women. And, you know, if you read um, Spanish drama from the period, there's a lot of anxiety over young Spanish men sneaking into, you know, uh, the rooms of young Spanish women and doing goodness knows what. So this, um, you know, entry into the harem is definitely playing off of that anxiety and a sense of saying, look, even though the Ottomans have done their most to enclose these women, our daring young Spanish gallants have still been able to catch a hold of them. So it's a, a victory, in a sense, that sort of points to Spanish superiority, um, kind of metonymically, in a sense, despite the fact that, you know, the Spanish in reality are being held captives there. Okay, so even though the captives, the fact that they're able to enter the harem, the fact that they're able to kind of really kind of overcome the guards and kind of find their way in this, this forbidden space really kind of shows kind of Spanish cultural dominance more, mm -hmm. more kind of generally? Yeah, 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 Okay, exactly. Could you talk a little bit about the bathhouse as well? Is there, I mean, because the bathhouse, I feel like it's a little bit... A little bit different, right? It's still, it's a very, mm -hmm. it's not, I mean, I guess it's probably sexualized in a different way. Mm -hmm. Just kind of, what, what do we see happening in, in this space? The bathhouse, um, so it's important to remember that at this point, the former Roman baths were converted into prisons. So um, if you were held captive in Constantinople, you would have, you know, some experience in the Banyos. Um, that's where all the captives were, most of the captives at least were, were kept. I argue that this also connects to a different moment in the same myth that I just referred to, myth of the last Visigoth king, Rodrigo, where to, um, he spends time after you know the final defeat and complete destruction of his army, he spends some time wandering through the Iberian Peninsula and trying to find a way to do penance for you know, the sexual wrongdoing that lost to the, led to the loss of his entire kingdom. And he finally comes across a hermit who um, tells him... Um, on divine authority, of course, that if he wants to be completely forgiven for everything, he has to enclose himself in a tomb with two snakes. One that um, will eat his heart, and another one that eats his penis. So there is uh, a sense of castration here, and um, in these um, Turkish banyos, in these prisons, there's not necessarily uh, the same sense of castration, but there is a sort of desexualization. The men there are... Um, treat each other as, as equals, as peers, as it were. They share things, and um, the accounts of the prison are very much centered on their, um, you know, the sense of community that they establish, as well as their practice as, Christen, uh, as Christians. So it kind of creates this sense of a cohesive community within the Ottoman Empire that isn't, certainly isn't a colony, but it also has a sort of hegemonic um, aspect to it, to show that even though they're captives, even though they're prison, they're still able to maintain a sense of collective social identity that, you know, even the Ottomans can't completely level. 
So your final question or your final chapter focuses on ideas of focus on these representations of Troy that we see in the Middle Ages, and then we also see kind of moving into the early modern period as well. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit as to why you think Troy and this idea, this Trojan myth, was so important. Yeah, definitely. It's important to understanding Constantinople because, of course, you know, the obvious geographic proximity. In order to get to Istanbul on boat, you have to pass through the Dardanelles, which um, goes right by uh, Chanakali, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the site of um, yeah, historical Troy. At the same time, of course, you know, the Trojan War um, in the Middle Ages, they would read the accounts of Darius and um, Dictus, of course. So that was a major cultural... So who, so who is this? Um, Darius and Dictus. Mm -hmm. um, they, so Homer what didn't emerge until um, later on, and I'm not as sure on the chronology as I should be, but medieval Troy is um, from these two... Um, from these two authors who, you know, are likely um, either forgeries or just later accounts, you know, not quite as close to the chronology as Homer's, but anyway. Well, they, they claim to be first-hand accounts, right? Even right, of course, they're really, yeah, yeah. Even though no, they're no. really not, right? These are <laughs> medieval authors who are saying that they, they were there. They're, one's a Trojan, one's a Greek. Right, yeah, exactly, so. yeah, as they, as they always do, of course. So in Spain's case, the, there are several different accounts of the Trojan War, which are more often than not translations of the French Lay of Troy. And uh, what's in an interesting theme within this is that there's a very consistent association of Greece as being representative of the rest of Europe and Troy as being the rest, um, representative of the rest of Asia. So the Trojan War kind of emerges as this paradigm for Orientalism, you know, in reference to Edward Said a bit, as a conflict between East and West. And um, underscoring that, of course, you know, the inevitable victory, um, the superiority of the West as the Greeks eventually conquer, conquer Troy. Uh, running alongside this, it's also interesting to note that, you know, of course, it was popular for medieval and Renaissance rulers to cite um, some sort of Trojan geneolo genealogical Troy uh, tie through um, Aeneas, but this was also something that they projected onto um, the Turks as well. You know, well in the Middle Ages, they thought that the Turks were descendants of this Trojan prince, Torgatus. Yeah, that was something I thought was really interesting just from looking at your work. Could you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, I would think that if they are kind of descendants of Trojans, I mean, we see this going all the way back to Virgil, right? This idea mm -hmm. of kind of this very Western identity being tied up in this Trojan origin. So why would the Turks, who are kind of a great enemy, why would they also be depicted in this kind of this positive way, as, as it were? Yeah, um, well, part of it is, of course, that... When this started, the Turks weren't really the great enemy at one point. They were just, uh, you know, rather um, one of many Central Asian nomadic tribes. And what's interesting is um, uh, Nancy Bisaha points out that with the fall of Constantinople, this association between the Trojans and the Turks really declines a great deal. I argue that um, it declines in the Spanish case as well, but not because they saw the Turks as barbarians, as you know, is a term that's lanced about a good deal by Italian humanists. And certainly you can find this in Spanish writing as well. But more so because with Spain's growing sense of empire, they were much more eager to claim um, Troy as exclusively their own past and to sort of wrest this from, you know, wrest this from any possible narratives that, you know, um, tied Troy to classical greatness. Yeah, I think you you talk a little bit about Carlos the uh, first, the first Habsburg ruler of Spain, really kind of emphasizing this link, this connection to to Aeneas. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that 
as well? Sure. Mary Tanner's book, The Last Descendant of Aeneas, does a wonderful job of explaining um, how complex the, is the you know, uh, mechanism of propaganda that Charles V and later Philippe, his son Philip II, employs mm -hmm. that draws them, um, you know, ties them to Aeneas all in order to construct this image of the last world empire, mm -hmm. emperor who um, ruled on three different continents and would usher in this age of uh, millennial peace, you know, prior to the Christian end times and all of that. At the same time, there's um, a curious contradiction where that, um, you know, Aeneas was certainly by the Habsburgs appropriated as this, you know, great figure, but... Um, at the same time, he was a bit of a, a, a more complex figure than that at the same time. For instance, um, there were some portrayals of Aeneas that would accuse him of being a cowardice in this final battle that he has to finally, um, you know, secure dominance over the Italians. Um, you know, he's briefly hidden, um, I think, by, by, you know, by his mother Venus mm -hmm. under this cloak of invisibility of sorts. One thing that I'm currently exploring in a, a different chapter of my dissertation um, which is a bit out of order, is how Aeneas is projected onto the figure of Mehmet the Conqueror um, to sort of criticize um, the project of empire, you know, bring back the... Oh, that's interesting. Is that at the same time as the under the Habsburgs, or is that... It is. It is very particularly uh, under Felipe II. Okay. So a lot of people have read, you know, this uh, Mehmet, you know, conquering Constantinople as the sign of... Um, uh, not a lot, but a couple of critics, I should say, have read, you know, this um, projection of Aeneas onto Mehmet the Conqueror as a criticism of um, Felipe II as a sort of tyrannical ruler. And um, I, I'm still developing it a bit, but I'm trying to read onto this uh, larger criticism of, of empire. So the upshot is that um, the Spanish were still very much willing to use Aeneas as a figure to... Um, empower, you know, their project of empire, mm -hmm. but also at the same time to criticize it. Oh, and the Turks provided a rich ground, the Ottomans provided a rich ground to, um, you know, have those sort of forbidden kinds of discussions, you know, about Spain, uh, but outside of Spain. So I was wondering in your, in this chapter, you also talk a little bit about Tirano Blanc, and I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit on what this kind of connection that we see between Constantinople and this, this text, and maybe even kind of introduce the text a little bit as well, so we kind of know where, where you're coming from. And then also just looking at this kind of connection between, or looking at the way that Tehran connects Constantinople with this idea of Troy, which you just talked about so, so eloquently. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, Tirano Blanc um, was written in part by Giorno Martorell, and then... Uh, um, finished by the person who inherited this text and later later sold it. And um, it's an interesting text to consider in light of Constantinople because it was published, I think, in 1490 and certainly began after the actual historical fall of Constantinople. So it chronicles this um, young British knight who um, um, gains all sorts of honor and renown in England before fighting the or fighting Muslims in Sicily, and then finally um, arriving in Constantinople, where he staves off this massive invasion of um, Muslims of all stripes, you know, Turks as well as um, Egyptians, as well as Indians, um, I think even um, Qatar, you know, uh, emerge or shows up there briefly. Due to all of his military brilliance, etc., he's able to save the city and is, of course, promoted to emperor. As so it's are. very much, yeah, exactly, as you are. Um, so it's this reimagining, kind of like, um, I think uh, one critic called it a sort of um, reconstructivist um, 
of fiction of sorts, you know, kind of like we could compare it to Quentin Tarantino's um, movie about the Nazis. Oh, um, Inglorious Bastards? Right, right, exactly, exactly. It is kind of, you know, of that vein of like, well, if we had managed to get Constantinople in time, this is how we could have saved it. Could you maybe talk a little bit, so we see kind of this this emphasis on Constantinople, we see this kind of reimagining of the fall of Constantinople, mm -hmm. where it doesn't happen, in, in a sense. So what about this connection to Troy as well? How do we see kind of Troy in the narrative? Right, so it very much is following this um, pattern that I mentioned was set forth in the Chronicles, where the Turks are elided with the, um, you know, with the Trojans, um, with the Asians in general, whereas the Greeks, um, the Byzantine Greeks are elided more with the Europeans, um, as is Tehran, you know, um, the um, King of England tries to keep him from participating in a tournament because he's so young. And Tehran says, well, you're pretty much putting a dress on me just like happened to Achilles, you know, when Ulysses came mm -hmm. to look for him. When Tehran is actually in Constantinople, a Byzantine knight says, Tehran, you can't actually fight with us until you go to the site where Paris kidnapped um, Helen, which is a memorial site that celebrates the Greek victory over the Trojans. And, um, you know, the Turks at one point fly a banner that cast themselves as the Avengers of Troy. So it very much is following that same logic. But um, what I find particularly fascinating in the text is when we actually get to the sole reference to physical Troy in the text. So Tyrant has had a falling out with Carnusina, the princess, his love interest, and has gone to North Africa and, you know, basically with um, his own wits managed to subdue and Christianize, you know, the entirety of um uh, of the North African coast, and he's finally returning to Constantinople to very much in a matter of chapters just sweep over all the Muslim forces and conquer them. So Troy serves as this brief respite before he moves into Constantinople and is just, um, you know, overruns it uh, victoriously. And there's not a lot of description of the physical site of Troy in that. But what is interesting is this interpolated episode that comes right before it, where this um, North African Christian knight, Hippolytus, shipwrecks. He's um, sent on an errand to get in touch with Tehran. And um, he actually ends up shipwrecking, shipwrecking in the island of Kos. And um, it's devastated. There's not a lot around. So the only way he's able to save himself is to kiss this princess who was... Um, cursed by the goddess Diana to take the form of a dragon. And he does, and of course he's made into a king. So sounds and, great. Yeah, and yeah, leads the island into, you know, unprecedented prosperity. So mm -hmm. it is kind of this um, miniaturized version of what happens to Tehran, um, you know, by defeating, you know, Diana, who's alighted with the moon, um, you know, so kind of like a Islamified goddess, as it were. He conquers Constantinople, or sorry, Toronto is elevated to the throne of Constantinople and rules with unprecedented prosperity. I find the most fascinating in this episode, though, is this dynamic of Hippolytus moving into a kingdom that's basically abandoned and, um, you know, there among the ruins, just through a bit of valor, is pretty much placed on top of it, you know, is. Um, it becomes the owner of the whole place, you know, moves in, basically with all the furniture and everything already bought and paid for. It strikes me as a very Reconquest-esque um, type dynamic, whereas the Christians were moving southward, you know, oftentimes they'd be moving into these um, mostly depopulated or at least partially depopulated cities and um, just kind of setting up shop within them. So, you know, this sense of living among the ruins and um, prospering that way. Another interesting aspect is that um, this dragon princess was the daughter of Hippocrates, you know, the founder of Greek medicine, so a towering figure in, um, you know, classical medical knowledge. And um, Hippolytus is able to do what this king was evidently unable to do. So there's this sense of 
this um, knight moving into a classical space and usurping, um, you know, classical mm -hmm. intellectual history there. Um, so in your in this chapter, you also talk a little bit about Lope de Vega. And you talk a bit about the way that he kind of, in some of his plays, we see kind of Troy coming in and kind of playing this major role. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that and just talk a little bit about that. Right. So it's worth noting that Frederick Zeralta has a wonderful article where he uh, essentially concludes that Lope de Vega uses Troy um, to cover a wide range of topics. Erotic love, feminine beauty, um, betrayal as well. What is interesting is, though, within Lope de Vega's corpus is um, he has a play published in 1621 uh, on La Santa Liga, which chronicles this um, catastrophic defeat of the, Muslim, of the Ottoman naval forces um, in the Battle of Lepanto, which I think was in 1570, 1571. The Ottoman Empire, of course, continues chugging along. And, you know, within Ottoman history, it doesn't really register as a huge event, but for the Europeans and the Spanish especially, this was this huge turning point, you know, finally breaking the, you know, the Ottoman stranglehold of the Mediterranean, um, you know, which is why Lope de Vega is publishing about it 50 years after yeah. the fact still. So um, the text is, you know, pretty um, triumphalist, you know, very much celebrating um, Spanish and European grandeur. But um, Troy does emerge here, but what is interesting is that uh, one of the characters, Juan de Austria, um, tells another important Christian character, Andre, Andrea de, de Doria, Yo seré español Aquiles, sed vos Héctor Genoves. So in contrast to this division between um, the Trojans as the Turks and the Greeks as, you know, presaging for Europeans, the Spanish, the Christians, Lope de Vega is now claiming Héctor and with it all of Troy as being completely Spanish and completely Christian. So there's um, kind of a power play there, you know. Um, he's saying that we're no longer equals. It's no longer, we're no longer these two classical forces and internal antagonism where eventually the Greeks will overthrow the, the Trojans. But rather, Greek, Troy, it all belongs to, to Spain and its heritage. And the Ottomans are just usurpers, you know, yeah. outsiders infringing on that. No, that's really great. I like that. So this idea that kind of both sides of the classical past is all kind of Spanish, mm -hmm. right? So and who they're fighting is kind of outside kind of this classical history. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Greeks, yeah. Trojans, everyone, Spain is all of it. Right, exactly, exactly. And the Ottomans, as a consequence, no longer are really tethered into any ancient history, you know, which kind of suggests that they're much more of a temporary power than would have been, you know, immediately evident, um, you know, at that point in history or, you know, any of the... You know, or decades afterwards, where you know um, the Ottoman Empire persisted for centuries. You know, centuries even after even after the Battle of Lepanto, of course. Another interesting maneuver here is that um, Lope does still project aspects of you know, the um, matter of Troy onto the Ottomans. Um, you know, the Ottomans are tripping over themselves to seduce this uh, Constantina. Uh, Constantina. Yes, yes, very, very aptly named. Um, although she's actually um, a Cypriot. Yeah, a Cypriot, um, curiously enough. So they're tripping over themselves to seduce her, and one of the other characters, a uh, um, renegade who's just above all of this, says, well, look, she's no Elena of Troy. She's no Cava. So right there you're touching on, of course, the Spanish anxieties, you know, the myth of the last Visigoth king. And also kind of saying, look, you guys are making the same mistake that the Trojans did you know, that Paris did with, um, you know, bringing about the doom of his entire kingdom by, you know, kidnapping Helen. So in a sense, Lope is saving the epic greatness of Troy for Spain 
while projecting the epic, or you know, the the Trojan failure, you know, um, uncontrolled, um, you know, uncontrolled sexuality, leaving that for the Ottomans. Okay, so he's taking all the best, all the best stuff, all the heroic yep. parts. That's he's going to take for Spain, and everything else is going to be left behind. For, exactly, exactly for the Turks. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, David. Thank you so much for your time. Last question, and mm -hmm. then I'll, I'll let you go here. What do you see yourself doing with this project moving forward? How do you see things kind of advancing in the future? What do you want to do with this? Where, where do you see this going? So um, there's two major directions. One thing is um, I'm kind of hoping um, a bit reminiscent of um, Stephen Colbert's bit on his show, uh, The Meanwhile, um, taking all of the bits that I haven't been able to put into my structure, my dissertation, and um, turn that into just a, a tiny little book that tries to recapture the experience of Constantinople through Iberian eyes that looks particularly at sites, you know, the harem, uh, the banos, but also other things like the Hagia Sophia that captured Spanish mm -hmm. attention and also have a very meaningful trajectory. One, I'll give you a very quick example. The, um, there's this um, statue of the Emperor Justinian on top of a column, which no longer exists. But um, there's a fascinating transition where um, Roy Gonzalez de Clavijo sees, he says, um, the stature is gesturing eastward to show that Justinian had many great conquests over the, over, um, over the Turks at that point. And 50 years later, when Pedro Tafur revisits the statue um, and then writes about it afterwards, after the fall of Constantinople, he says, no, Justinian's gesturing to say, this is where the people who will conquer the city are coming from. So fascinating pivots like that that I think um, would um, would make for a, you know an interesting exploration. The, my larger aim in this is to um, try to construct a sort of pre-enlightenment Spanish Orientalism to look at how the framework and their paradigms and the images with which they viewed the Turks um, met and also contradicted um, you know um, more familiar frameworks of marophilium, immarophobia, as Barbara Fuchs talks in length about. Sounds great. Okay. David, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.